Well, church, this morning we are going to continue our study of the book of Leviticus. And uh, we are beginning in chapter 2 this morning. But if you noticed in your bulletin, uh, there's quite a number of uh, scripture passages there. And we will not be reading all of them. So I just want to let you know as we introduce these truths to our hearts, um, you could follow along. It might be best to follow along on the screen behind me. Of course, while we're in God's Word during the sermon, it would be good to have a copy of God's Word open because we'll be referring back to it throughout our time together. So we're going to start on page 81, by the way, if you're using the Pew Bible. And that's Leviticus chapter 2. I'll be reading a couple verses from chapter 2, chapter 3, and then some verses from chapter 7. And so hear now the Word of God. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hands on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw blood against the sides of the altar And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offering that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with thanksgiving sacrifices unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread, and from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. Our Father in heaven, uh, we are thankful once again that we might come and consider your word. And even in reading this, in the face of it, it seems very obscure to us as we considered last week and perhaps even irrelevant to us. And and yet we know that's not true, for all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe this is Your Word. And so we ask You now for special kindness upon us through Your Spirit that we might have insight into what You are saying and what it means for us today as we set our hearts upon Your truth. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you have, if you've been around for a while, you have heard me speak of my great hero, 
Um, the man that if I could be like any man uh, in, who has followed the Lord, it would be George Whitfield, uh, the man who preached for 40 to 60 hours a week, preached over 18,000 times. If he went to a town, the town would close, the shops would close, they would all go out to hear Whitfield preach. If he preached as early as 5 a.m., which he did many times, the crowds would walk for hours to hear him preach for two to three hours at a time. He preached routinely to 10,000 people without amplification, once preaching to over 60,000 people without a microphone. Whitfield once wrote, I love those that thunder out the word. The Christian world is in a deep sleep. Nothing but a loud preaching voice can awaken them. Right, And uh, he preached loud, and he preached often, and he preached so much that he preached himself into asthma as he grew older. In fact, he preached himself to death, if you want to know the truth. But when he was sick with asthma, he put himself on what he called short allowance, which meant he only preached once every day and only three times on Sunday. Right, And it, historians understand that it is through George Whitfield that he changed almost single-handedly, of course, God through him, two nations. It was through Whitfield's revival in England that England was saved from a bloody French-like revolution. And, of course, it is through Whitfield that God brought about the Great Awakening here in America. Now, a man who could, you know, you've heard all that probably. I'm going to share this with you about every three months, don't I? Um, but the, the man who could travel and preach to, and bring thousands to Christ, you may not know, was able to do so because a woman stood behind him. Her name was Selena Hastings, also known as the Countess of Huntington. She was of the highest nobility and came to Christ as an adult and wanted to use her influence and her vast wealth in order to bring others to Christ. And so she set up a meeting with George Whitfield when he was just beginning his ministry, taking to the fields to preach. The, her biographer uh, recounts that meeting, writing, I, uh, this is from Selena Hastings saying, I watched God save souls through the light of his all-glorious gospel, and now I see that the one thing worth living for must be the proclaiming the love of God to man in Christ. So, she said, my mind is made up. I'd like to propose a partnership. Go on, Whitfield said. God chose me to be a member of England's nobility, and now I'm ready to use my position for Jesus' sake, and I want your help. I'm listening, Whitfield said, as a warm smile spread across his face like a sunshine. Well, Galatians 2.2 says that Paul preached privately to those who seem influential in Jerusalem. And I have a burden for the influential in England. They won't go out to the fields to hear Methodist preachers. And when they attend church, they hear sermons with no theological guts. Whitfield, I want you to bring the gospel to them in my home starting tomorrow night. And without hesitation, Whitfield agreed to this partnership Preach in her home that following night. He went home writing in his journal, I went home never more surprised at any incident in my life. The prospect of doing good to the rich and influential that attend her ladyship's house is very encouraging. Who knows what God may do? Well, you know what God did? He brought politicians, actors, 
ladies, lords, even members of the royal family that would sit under Whitfield's preaching in Selena Hastings' estate every Tuesday and Thursday night, bringing many of them in faith to Christ. But their partnership didn't end there. The reason that Whitfield could travel back and forth from England to America was because of Selena Hastings funded him. She also built 116 church buildings and a seminary out of her own wealth. She would use 50% of her yearly income and burn through much of her, um, her, her savings from generations in order to fund Whitfield's ministry. She so impacted George Whitfield that when he died, a man of very modest means, he left every cent he had to the countess so that she can use his resources to continue the ministry in which they started. Now, my question for you is, why? Why would someone give up their wealth and their prestige? She was derided by many in the nobility for this partnership. Her connections. Why would someone give up their health, their ease, their life, as Whitfield did? Why such sacrifice? Was it out of religious duty, you think? Perhaps to earn divine favor, you think? No. My friends, it was out of a heartfelt love for the God who saved them. We find ourselves today in the second week of our study through Leviticus. And as we covered last week, if you weren't here last week, by the way, and you want to follow along in this study of Leviticus, you might be helped to listen at least to the first half hour of last week's sermon as we just introduce Leviticus. And I know that Leviticus is a difficult book. Even reading that scripture this morning, I felt awkward reading it. It's It's so foreign to us. It's hard for us. But please understand, it was not foreign to the Hebrews. They they loved it because it was through the law that they can meet with God. It is Michael Morales, the, the great Old Testament theologian, who says Exodus 40 closes with a wonder. The Garden of Eden planted, as it were, in the midst of Sinai's arid wilderness. Israel's mediator, however, is unable to enter through Eden's gates into the glory of the divine presence. Here, Israel is brought face to face with the fundamental question that has perplexed human civilization across the ages and cultures of history. How does one get back inside? back to the golden age, back to paradise with God. The legislation of Leviticus then is not merely offering tedious ritual instruction. Rather, it is narrating a theological story. Leviticus begins with Israel standing outside the cherubim-guarded entry of Eden. If Moses the mediator may not enter, then how will it be possible for the tabernacle to become a tent of meeting between God and all of Israel? That's where Leviticus begins. How can we dwell with God? He lives in our midst. How can we now be with him? And then Leviticus begins to answer that question. The answer, as we saw last week, is through sacrifice. Through a bloody knife and a burning altar. And we begin to see the first sacrifice of five that Leviticus lays out for us. The burnt offering last week, which is to make atonement through sin. But the question then raises is... Is that it? Okay, now God lives in our camp, in his house. Does that, is all we do is just bring burnt offerings to him to find atonement? In other words, do all we do is come to God and say, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me? No. In fact, we see in the very next 
the, the two next sacrifices, that once atonement is made through the burnt offering, the worshipers are to enjoy a sacrificial thanksgiving to God and joyful fellowship with God. And I want to consider those rituals, those sacrifices in a moment. But before we get to actually text, when, when, we, when we come to Leviticus, we, we think, okay, if God wants to have this joyful, intimate relationship with us, why all the rules, right? And we struggle a little bit with that. I mean, you wait till we get to like a, the middle of Leviticus and, and in order to be cleansed from your leprosy, you, you have yarn and birds and hyssop and you get oil put on your toes. And it's just all, it's like, what, what is going on? Why all these rules? Why these rituals? It doesn't sound like joy and intimacy to us. Let me give you two answers why Leviticus is full of ritual and why it's probably good for us. Number one, ritual can show us who we worship. Right? Though we have joyful fellowship with God, please understand God is not our buddy. Okay? God is our king. And I don't know, were you following uh, President Trump's tour through the world this week? And, you know, Saudi Arabia and Israel and the Vatican City and then the NATO and, and all the rich, he gets off the plane, the red carpet, and you got the band over here and who walks first and who greets and how do you greet, right? That's all very important. In fact, we even in America have an office of government protocol, which explains to the president or the secretary of state how to receive a dignitary from another nation. To receive someone properly is to recognize the authority of the person in whom you're countering. Or take, for instance, another example. We have um, very specific rules with how we treat the American flag. Right? We, we even have a U.S. flag code. And I remember about 25 years ago, as a Boy Scout, we had, our troop had an old, tattered flag that was no longer fitting to fly. And so um, we retired that flag as, as a troop. And I remember the color guard advancing in their dress uniforms. And I remember the flag being lowered, lowered as the bugler played. And I remember the flag being folded up in silence and then being marched over to awaiting fires. We gathered around. I remember the national anthem being sung while that flag was placed in the, uh, in the fire to be retired. I remember the Pledge of Allegiance that followed that. And then the silence as we all stood around and considered what that flag meant to us and to our nation. Let me ask you, was that a drab ritual? Right? Was that kind of meaningless law? No, my friends, far from it. I mean, 25 years later, it's so vivid in my heart. I remember it like it was yesterday. What if you came over to my house and you saw that I had the old flag and I was using it to change my oil? Right? What, what would you think if, if, if I used it as a, of a, um, a floor mat to wipe your feet off as you entered into my, sh- my shop or my house? You would think, what are you doing? That is not befitting of what that flag represents. Well, you see, ritual is very important for us. You see, we would say that flag deserves better. What God gives out Leviticus, he is telling us, I deserve better. I'm a king. I am the king of kings. And when you worship me, you should worship me in obedience to me. Right? I don't know if you ever think about that. God, help my worship to be obedient. I think so often we're thinking about ourselves as we talk, oh, is this make me feel good, right? Is this so, no, God says, is, are, are you obeying me? 
right? And, 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 and they wanted to obey him. I think, you know, we look at Leviticus and we're like, oh, I don't know, it's so boring. I think they must have poured over it and think, oh God, we just want to worship you however you want us to. Show us how we can approach you. See, the first reason ritual is important is it shows us who we worship. Second, it shows us the importance of worship, right? Ritual identifies an event as important, right? You have a birthday, right? We have ritual in America. I don't know if other countries, we bake a cake, right? And we put pyrotechnics on the cake, right? And we dim the lights and we, someone carries the cake in and there is this corporate singing that takes place. Right? And then there's an extinguishing of the pyrotechnics, and then we eat the cake. We have like 30 birthdays a year in my house. I don't know. There's, listen, uh, over and over and over again, uh, every other week there seems to be a birthday. And I'll tell you, I do not remember a birthday which there was not a burning cake and a song being sung and, and all of that, right? We, this is, this is our ritual. You go to a funeral, what do you do? You, you, you don't wear flip-flops to a funeral, do you? You don't wear a ball cap to a funeral. You probably wear in dark colors. You, you go to a graduation ceremony, as many of you have, perhaps, right? And, and, and it's full of ritual. They've got special music. Men are wearing dresses, right? It's all very kind of, um, you know, very, very formal and, and ritualistic, right? And in fact, the more significant the event goes, the more elaborate the ritual attached to it. So if you go on a first date, you might bring flowers. You get married, you bring lots of flowers, right? And... And there's, you know, there's special seating and there's songs and there's, there's marching and there's vows and it's, and no one thinks at a wedding, no one comes to a wedding and sees the little flower girl down with the rose petal and think, oh, come on, rose pet, this is so dumb. Let's get on with it, right? No one sees a ring bearer and says, what is, no one, oh, she's wearing white. That is so dumb, right? And if you think that way, you're dumb, right? Because it's important. It's, Right? What, it's an important event, and we mark it with ritual, right? And so what is God teaching us? All these rules. You say, oh, these rules are dumb. Why all these rules? What is God thinking? How can I be intimate with God with all these rules? No, you see, what he's teaching us is that this is important. And therefore, he gives us law. And I wonder what benefit that we would have this side of the cross to begin to think about how I can mark off my day of worship. What does that look like for me? What does that look like on Saturday night? What does that look like Sunday morning? What does that look like so I can make sure I understand what's going to happen today? It's important. Okay? And so with these truths in mind, I want to consider these two offerings. The first offering, the grain offering, teaches us to bring our thanks to God. It's found in chapter 2. The grain offering, just to introduce it to you, is often brought with the burnt offering, but always after the burnt offering. Okay, The burnt offering, you seek atonement for sin. The grain offering is is an act of gratitude for the atonement and generally just for provision, God's provision in your life. And so you would bring God the fruit of the land. You would bring Him grain. You're giving back to God what He first gave you. You're saying to God when you bring it, God, you gave us the soil. You gave us the seed. You gave us the sun. You gave us the water. You protected us from locusts. You gave us the knowledge to be able to grow these and to harvest this and make bread. And you've given to us bountifully. And we want to thank you. We want to give back to you. Okay, that's the grain offering. There are four truths that we discover about this way to give thanks to God 
from Leviticus chapter 2 and a little in chapter 6. First of all, we learn that we are to give God our best. Look in verse 1 of chapter 2. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, he shall, um, his offering shall be of fine flour. Okay, this is the first of the four ingredients that will be in your grain offering. Every, one, every grain offering has four ingredients, the first being fine flour. Fine flour is a special kind of flour. It's a luxury. Ezekiel will mention fine flour along with gold and silver. It's very expensive. You can bring this fine flour to God raw if you want. Or according to verse 4, you could bake it in an oven. Verse 5, you could cook it on a griddle. Verse 7, you could fry it in a pan, right? So you could cook it in all sorts of ways. You could bring it to God raw, but it's always a fine flour. The second ingredient is oil. Look in verse 1. He says, his offering, he shall pour oil on it. And you'll see this again in in verse 4, 5, 6, 7, verse 15. They, They put oil on this because oil is used by God to mark something off as his. Right? We'll see this a lot later on in Leviticus. When something's marked with oil, it's dedicated to God. It's anointed. Right? And so they would dedicate this to the Lord. And then you would offer third ingredients, frankincense. Read on in verse 1. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. You'll see that in verse 2, verse 15 as well. Now listen, frankincense is a very expensive incense. Right? This all is expensive. The fine flour is expensive. The frankincense is expensive. This is a costly gift that you're giving to God to express your gratitude to Him. And, and that frankincense, as you read on, is this, makes this pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, just to let you know, you can't eat frankincense. And so what they would do is they would put the frankincense on top. They wouldn't mix it in. So whenever the priest would burn, he would take the part with the frankincense and he would burn that and he would keep the rest for himself. Right? And so what, what God's teaching is when you come and want to give me thanks, you need to bring your best to me. You need to give God your best. And I wonder, have you, do you give God your best in worship? That is very relevant for us. Do you come here this morning prepared for worship? Do you come here alert? Do you come here awake? Do you come here eager to worship God? Do you come here bringing bringing your worship? Do you come bearing gifts to God? Do you come bringing your wealth and your offerings? Right? Do you want to give that to the Lord? Right? Do you come bringing your time? Listen, they sacrificed to do this. They had to bake bread. They got to get these ingredients. They got to buy them. They got to put it together. They got to go down to the, to the tent of meeting in order to give God. And they want, but they're happy to do so because they want to give God their best. The second truth that we see about this offering is that we are to rejoice in God's commitment. We see this in the fourth and final ingredient in the grain offering. It's the ingredient of salt. Look at verse 13. He says, you shall offer your grain offering with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Okay. So salt is necessary. It's mentioned three times in that verse. It's also called the salt of the covenant. The reason it does this is because salt would testify that the relationship between God and his people is permanent like salt is. It's unfailing. You know, you can't destroy salt with fire. You know what happens if you burn salt? You get salt. Um, Salt doesn't wear out. Salt doesn't lose its flavor. Salt lasts forever. It's very, very stable. And it is a reminder that God's commitment to his people is very stable. It's why it's called the salt of the covenant, right? In fact, in the ancient Near East, sometimes when you, people would enter into covenants, they would take a pinch of salt when they're done and they would eat it. 
to testify that this is a lifelong covenant. They would dip their swords in, in salt and the tip, and they would taste the salt from the tip of the sword to, to exemplify that the relationship that we have now entered is a permanent covenant. In fact, Second Chronicles 13, verse 5 says, The Lord God gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. Right? It's permanent. It's his. And so what God is doing is he's giving them this instruction. He says, okay, you bring the offering, you should add salt. Why? He wants to remind them of his faithfulness to them. He wants them to be reminded that they should rejoice in God's commitment to them. And how encouraging what that would be. These people who are who need to enter the promised land, which is inhabited by enemies, right? Need to start a new nation, right? And God is saying, you don't need to fear. The mighty king who dwells in your midst is committed to you. Now, please understand that he is committed to us as well. We have a covenant with him. A covenant which God says, I'll never leave you. Do you understand that? I'll never forsake you. The Lord Jesus said, I will be with you. What is it? Always. Everyone say always. I will be with you always. Right? And we are to rejoice in God's commitment to us. How extraordinary is the fact that God is committed to you forever. It must have been so powerful in their life. And we need to recapture that. Number three, the third truth, that they should trust in God's continued provision. Look in verse 14. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears. They, listen, they would go out and they would harvest their grain, but they would not wait until the harvest is completed. Wait till they have enough food. And okay, we got this left over. Let's bring that to God. No, they would take the first part of the harvest before they knew if it was going to be a good harvest, a plentiful harvest, uh, uh, enough of a harvest. And so we're going to give the first to God and we're going to trust God for the rest. God's going to give us the rest. We don't have to worry about it, right? We don't have to wait to see what kind of harvest it is. We are going to give him the first fruits. And I believe, my friends, we are called to continue to give God our first fruits, the first fruits of our time. We don't think, okay, I'll wait till I see if I have enough time at the end of the day to give to God. First fruits of our resources. I'm not going to wait till the end of the month to see if I have enough to give to God. We don't pay Visa first and the electric company first and the bank first. We, we give to God first, trusting that God will take care of our needs. The Lord Jesus taught us this. He said, when you pray, pray, give us our daily bread. Who gives you your bread? God does. And when you give God back your first fruits, it is a way to strengthen your own faith that God will take care of me. I want to give you my first. Last night we were, as a family, we were thinking about this passage. And uh, we have a little strawberry patch out in the garden. And we, we get excited when the strawberries come in, right? And, uh, and, and, and we all want to taste strawberries. And when that first part of this, you know, the bright and beautiful and red and so delicious. And I said, kids, what if, what if instead of tasting the strawberries, what if... What if we gave, took that first bunch of strawberries and gave that to God? Okay. Now, we're not going to put strawberries in the offering plate, okay? So don't, don't worry about it. And, and we're not going to do this. The, 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 the point is, I, what would that teach us, right? If we saw these beautiful strawberries and we're so excited to eat them, but we, you know what we'd rather do? We'd rather say, God, as much as we want to eat these, we value so much more. And we'll wait for you to give us more. We want to give our first to you. 
So that's what he's teaching these people. And I wonder, you know, we can't do this with strawberries. We won't live off strawberries. But are there one of those ways in which we can incorporate these truths into our lives? The fourth truth we see is that they are express your devotion to God. There's one ingredient you can't add. It's found in verse 11. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor honey as a food offering to the Lord. Leaven and honey is the opposite of salt. It doesn't preserve. It breaks it down. It ferments. It's associated with corruption, right? And, and what God is teaching them is you can't simply come and bring God your gift and at the same time gleefully live a corrupted life. Gleefully live in sin. Same for us. Right? Sinners are welcome here today. In fact, I'm looking around and all I see are sinners. Okay? We are welcome to worship God. But we can't play the hypocrite. Right? We can't say, okay, I'll come in, I'll pretend to worship, but I'm going to run back into sin as soon as this is over. That's what God is teaching them. And so they would bring this grain offering. They would, um, they would, they would give it to the priest. Look in verse 2, see what the priest would do. And bring it to Aaron's son, the priest, and he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil and all the frankincense, right? And the priest shall burn this as its memorial or remembrance portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, okay? So they, they would bring this and they would, the priest would give this to God. This would please God. Uh, it's a pleasing aroma. The rest of it is given to the priest to eat. Look in verse 3. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offering. So it's all given to God, and then God takes it, some of it, and he gives it to the priests. Now, what are the priests supposed to do? I want you to turn over to Leviticus chapter 6. Okay? So listen, Leviticus 1 through 5 lays out the first five sacrifices. Leviticus 6 and 7 goes over those same five sacrifices... But this time, in chapters 6 and 7, it does it from the perspective of the priest. So the first five show what the worshiper is supposed to do. First five chapters, 6 and 7 shows what the priests are supposed to do. And so just I want to show you what the priests would do in chapter 6. Look in verse 16, for instance. It says, And the rest of it Aaron and his son shall eat. It shall be eaten with un- in, eaten unleavened in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. So it's holy now. It's given to God. They can't take it outside the courtyard. They need to keep it in the holy place. And there they're going to eat it. And, w- and what, what we see is that this is how the priests are taken care of. That the priest, the tribe of Levi is given no land. They are to fully devote themselves to the tabernacle district and to care for the tabernacle and to the offering of the sacrifices. They're to minister there full time. And they are to live off the gifts of the worshipers. Okay? Now what does this mean that a, that a priest doesn't worship in this way? Now this is, this is cool because the priests not only would receive grain offerings, they would offer grain offerings to God. Verse 19 of chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. A tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering. Offer it to the Lord, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from whom Aaron's sons, who is anointed to succeed him, shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. 
the whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. So the priests bring the grain offering to express gratitude to God. But there's two differences. One, one is that the priests um, can't eat it. They're, right? You can't benefit from your own gift. You can't give to God and then say, okay, now I get it back. Right? So you give it all to God. The priests will give it all to God. The second difference is that the priest's grain offering was not voluntary. All the worshipers would voluntarily bring this. The priests were not voluntary. They had to give thanks to God every morning and every evening, right? They're offering this grain offering to God. They're going to begin and end each day. The priest giving thanks to God. Cooking bread, giving it to God. The point of all is this, is we want to give thanks to our God. Right? The grain offering is God's ordained way that we can praise Him as the one from whom all blessings flow, as we will sing later on in our service. Right? This is what we're come here today. This is where we see this parallels. Right? Is this not why we're here? I appreciate how Ben started us in worship this morning. Are you thankful? Do you come in on Sunday morning, you walk into this room thinking, God, I just want to thank you today. And I'm so happy that I could be shoulder to shoulder with my brothers and sisters that we can gather together as your people called Hamilton Baptist Church because we want to thank you. We were driving here to church service this morning. I knew I was going to talk about this, so I'm already trying to work this into my family's life. So we just talked about what are, what are you thankful for? What do you want to praise God for today? Right? Do you walk in thinking, oh God, I'm so thankful for my family and thankful for the car that I got to drive here. Right? We, we get Starbucks every Sunday morning. That's our Sunday morning ritual. It is delicious and, uh, you know, divinely gifted uh, juice from God. And, uh, right, it's, it's our, it's, and it's a way, but I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's God's gift to us. I firmly believe this. When, and listen, in whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, give glory to God. Is that, is that why you're here? To give thanks to God? Because this is what I think. I think we're probably terrible at giving thanks to God. That may be too harsh, but that's what I feel. I feel like we give thanks to God and it takes about 10 seconds. And then we're moving on. What's on TV? What's for dinner? Okay, I gave my thanks. I'm moving on now. And you see, God says, I want you to give me thanks, but I want you to slow down and do it. Right? I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it while you're baking this bread and putting it together and bringing it to me. And I wonder if our life would be so much better. I wonder if, if our covetousness would fade away if we learned to pause life so that we might give thanks to God, even if our thanksgiving took effort to do so. You know, they're on the, uh, the, the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy 26, and it says, The Lord brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me, right? You're giving me all this I want to give back to you. By the way, he's given us far more than a land, hasn't he? He's given us his son, Jesus Christ, who, of course, is the bread of life, isn't he? 
And there's no leaven in Jesus. There's no corruption in him. Right? He, he, he's been anointed not with oil, but the Holy Spirit. He's been given frankincense at his birth. And he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He is the source of our satisfaction. We have been satisfied in Christ. Should we therefore not with overflowing hearts give him thanks? That's what the grain offering is all about. The second offering we'll consider this morning is the peace offering. Now this, I've studied all five. This is my favorite, okay? I hope it's going to be your favorite too. The peace, they're all pretty good. but The peace offering teaches us to enjoy fellowship with God or sometimes, sometimes it's called the fellowship offering. Your translation may call it that or peace with God. And you look over in chapter 3, we read all about the peace offering chapter 3. I don't know, if you look at your Bible, you'll see three paragraphs, chapter 3. The first paragraph is if you want to offer a bull. The second paragraph, you want to offer a sheep. The third paragraph, you want to offer a goat. Okay, they're almost identical, okay? It just depends on what kind of animal you're bringing. Very similar, at least it starts off with the burnt offering. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering... If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hands on the head of his offering, kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar, right? Bring the animal without defect to the entrance. Meet the priest. Explain why you're there. Lay your hands upon the animal. Pray over it. Then you kill the animal, the priest catches the blood, takes that blood for atonement, right? Because if you want to meet with God and enjoy God, atonement's going to have to be made. And so he throws that blood on the side of the altar. But here's the difference with the burnt offering. The burnt offering, all of it is what? It's burnt, right? It's all consumed. The peace offering, only part of the animal is burned. You want to see which part? Verse 3. Of course you do. Okay? And... And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver he shall uh, remove from the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood of the fire. It is a food offering, which is pleasing aroma to God. So you burn three parts of the animal because these three parts belong to God. You burn the fat, right? Verse 16 says, all the fat is the Lord's. Now you say, good, right? I don't want the fat, okay? And we were like, we want, we're, we're, you know, fat-free diet and reduced fat. Listen, we're, we are unusual, most of the world over most time does not get enough calories, right? We, we got like twice as many calories as we need. Most of the world, they have half as, they want the fat, but they're going to give it to God. God, it's the luxury, right? And, and God gets it. And if, by the way, some of you going to Ghana, um, this month and many of you going to August, man, I hope you get an opportunity to eat some beef in Ghana, right? Because it's like eating a shoe only worse. Okay, there, and you you you're going to be thinking, man, I wish there was some fat in this because this is this is terrible. Okay, but and their animals were lean. God gets the fat. Remember Eli's wicked sons. Remember them for Samuel two. They demanded the pieces of meat before the fat was burned. They were stealing from God. Second thing God gets, He gets the liver, right? And I say, praise God, He can have it. Okay. Okay, but we don't know why he gets the liver, but we do know that the Canaanites would take the livers 
of this, their sacrifices and they would divine the future of the worshiper from the liver. We have found clay, archaeologists have found clay models of livers at Canaanite worship sites where the priests would teach their apprentices how to divine the future from animal livers. And we wonder if maybe God is saying, listen, I'll take care of your future. You don't need to look at the liver, okay? I got it under control. Number three, you give God the kidneys, okay? Now, you give God the kidneys because for them, the kidneys was the seat of emotions, right? And you say, that sounds weird. Well, we're just as weird because we say this muscle in our chest pumping over and over again is the seat of our emotions. I mean, Mark was going on and on about our heart and our heart and our heart this morning, right? Right? And we all understood what he meant. He meant, we meant our, give him, give him our heart. Give him our, give, give him our, our longings and our deepest desires. Well, for them, they didn't give the heart. They gave the kidneys, right? And so, Mark, next time you say, we're going to give God all our kidneys, Okay. Because that's what they're thinking. This was a deeply emotional sacrifice to them. It was their way of saying, God, we are giving you all, uh, what we say, our heart. Now, why would they do this? What would occasion such a sacrifice? Turn over to chapter 7, and you get three reasons why you would bring a peace offering. Okay? And we're going to have to move quick. So here, hold on. Chapter 7, verse 11, gives us the three occasions for a peace offering. The first, we call a a praise offering so that's just a subset of a peace offering verse 11 and this is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offering that one may offer to the lord if he offers it for a thanksgiving then she he shall offer it with with the thanksgiving sacrifices unleavened loaves mixed with oil unleavened wafers and and so on you're going to read all that he brings with it so what you're going to do is you're going to offer this uh, animal to god because god has done something wonderful in your life most likely God has answered a prayer in your life. You've been praying and praying and praying, and God has come through. And what do you want to do in order to thank God and praise God for that specific act of deliverance? You would bring an animal to Him as a sacrifice, as a way to praise Him. Psalm 56 verse 12 says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from failing, that I may walk before the God in the light of life. Right? And so I just want to thank you for what you've done in my life. Right? And I, listen, God, God does something good in our life. What do we do? We thank God and then we move on with life. I wonder what good would happen if, right, if, if you know, you were cured from cancer or that you got the job. Or the baby was born. And instead of just saying, thank you, God, that is awesome. You, you just paused. You said, I'm going to gather together with my, my faith community, with people close to me. I'm going to bring friends. And we're going we're to have a cookout. We're going to eat a meal. We're going to break bread together. Simply as a way of pausing life and thanking God for what he's done. Right? I think that would be powerful in our lives. The second occasion is a vow offering, verse 16 of chapter 7. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, that's the third. A vow offering is that you would promise a vow. You would say, God, if you do something for me, my vow is I'm going to bring you this offering. It's a way to publicly honor God. Remember Hannah, right? Give me Samuel, give me a boy, and I will, and I will dedicate him back to you. That's my vow. God gives him Samuel once he's weaned. She brings him back down to Jerusalem with three bulls as a vow offering. 
as a way to complete the vow in which she has made. You can read about this in Psalm 66. We don't have time. Um, third, you see a free will offering. This is nothing in particular is going on. You just love God, right? And you want to just have a big old feast in God's honor because of what God has done. David will sing of free will offerings in Psalm 54. Now, I mentioned, I've already hinted that you get to eat this food. His only part of it is burned. The rest, um, the worshiper eats. In fact, there's three groups that eat. The Lord eats. He's got his portion. Okay, we're talking symbolically here, right? He doesn't show up and eat. But he gets the, the liver and the kidneys and the fat, right? I don't know how many times you see it's a food offering. It's a food offering to the Lord. Food offering to the Lord. That, please understand, that's symbolic. They're not thinking they're actually feeding God, Okay? The reason why they would take blood into the tabernacle on occasion but never meat is God doesn't need their meat, right? He's not eating it. The Canaanites, they would feed God. God would get angry if they're not feeding him enough. God says to them in Psalm 50, do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? No, he does not. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and his fullness is mine. In other words, God is not dependent upon us for his survival. It's actually the opposite, right? We're dependent upon him. So the, but, but it's this symbolic picture of that you get to break bread with God and then you would give some to the priest, right? The priest would get the right thigh who does the sacrifice and then the breast of the animal will be distributed to the rest of the priest. You read that later on in Leviticus chapter 7 and then the worshiper would eat the rest. Look in verse 15 of Leviticus 7 and the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. Okay. And so you would eat, eat this offering, right? And uh, you, you would do so um, because you wanted to, to of course, what's, what's happening here? They want to be with God. This is a picture of them fellowshipping with God. That's why it's called a fellowship offering. That God is beckoning his people to come and dine with him. Right? Meals were a sign of relationship. You don't eat meals with your enemies, right? When you eat with someone, you're, you're visiting, you're laughing, you're enjoying, it's expressing friendship. And the worshiper is invited through this offering to be an intimate fellowship of a meal with the Lord himself. Now this, I think, is just amazing. The fact that, that we get to come to God in his presence and not be destroyed is wonderful. Okay? And then that we could even give him our thanks is a great honor. But to come to God because He delights to be with you, that God says you are welcome with me. In fact, you're not only, you're wanted. That's what they are learning here through this peace offering. It is in many ways a return to Eden. At least a foreshadow of the time in which God dwelt with man, right? And, and this is what God intended for us, to enjoy intimate fellowship and joyful communion with Him. And in this peace offering, we see that God, despite our sin, continues to want to dwell with His people that we might delight in Him. You understand you're made for God. You know that, right? The chief end of man is to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. That's what the peace offering's for. Deuteronomy 12, verse 7 you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your household. Right? And this is what Jesus come to, came to do. 
This is not why he came and died. Does Jesus not say on the Passover, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I just want to break bread with you. I want to show you how much I love you. And one day Jesus says, listen, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself. What? That where I am, you may be also. That finally and forever we will be together. The distance between us will be bridged. It will be abolished on that day when you and I have full, direct personal fellowship with the Lord Himself. That's the peace offering. It's a foreshadow of that fellowship, but it's also a fellowship with God's people. Right? Here's the question. I don't know if you saw in verse 16, you had to eat the offering in that day. Question is, how do you eat a cow in a day? Right? You do so with friends, right? And family. And the poor that can't afford meat. And they would all gather there in the temple court. I mean, you are in God's front yard, in the sanctuary. And the priest would be there. And you would be there. Now, God will tell you before you come, you have to purify yourself. Right? You can't come with any ritual uncleanness. Right? You can't come living in sin. But you come and you eat with friends. It's this communal feast as they rejoice with God's people for what God has done, right? We do this, like, uh, the only time I think we do this, we do this at weddings, right? There's vows that are being made, and then we all, what? We all kind of break bread together in this celebration for what God has done. And I wonder if there are other times in our life we could begin to incorporate that. I wonder if, I'm just thinking as a family, I don't have the answers yet, but how do I tie Thanksgiving feasts more closely with my worship of God? How do I tie Christmas dinner more closely with my worship of God? I'm thinking about baptism, when someone makes baptism vows. How cool would it be that, okay, we're going to have a, if you will, a a vow offering dinner. That the vows have been made and we want to publicly testify to God and we're going to gather together with God's people, pause life for a moment, and give our thanks and praise to God as we enjoy His fellowship. And I wonder how we can incorporate these truths in our life. Of course, as we end this morning, there is already a meal that fulfills the promises of the peace offering. Right? Is it not hard to think about all this without thinking about this meal in front of us? This, this communal meal that the Lord gave us on the eve of His crucifixion. In fact, the Lord lifted up His cup, didn't He? And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my, what do you say? In my blood. Now, I, I don't want you to put your Bibles away just yet. I want you to turn back to Exodus. If you'll give me five minutes. I, I think I, this will blow you away. I, I hope. It blew me away. Exodus 24. Okay. When Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant, he is referring back to how this blood is replacing the blood of the old covenant. Now, when they were gathered at Sinai... In Exodus 24, verse 8, note what happens. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So they're entering this covenant. He's throwing blood on them. Where does this blood come from? Look in verse 5. And he, he sent, young men, uh, sent young men of the people of Israel who offered, look, two things. Burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Right? And so they, they, they take this, this burnt offering, which makes atonement for sin, and they take this peace offering, which is to enjoy the fellowship with God. 
right? And Jesus says that we're entering into a new covenant through my blood, that I'm going to make atonement. I'm going to be a burnt offering. I'm going to make atonement for your sin forever. And I'm going to enable fellowship with you and God. I'm going to be your peace offering for all time. And he would go to the cross and there be our offering for us. Colossians 1.20 says, Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. He's our peace offering, isn't he? Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with him? Do you know that fellowship with him? Jesus Christ would go to the cross and he would die upon the cross to pay the debt of sinners like you and me. And now he says, if you will come to me in faith and bow your knee to me as your Lord, if you will cry out to me, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I give you my life. He said, I will atone for all your sin and I will give you peace with God through my sacrifice. For the rest of us, those who experience that peace, what are we to do? We're to continue this, aren't we? Do this in remembrance of me, he says. And like the peace offering, the Lord's Supper is a meal in the presence of God. God is here today as we celebrate His sacrifice for us. Like the peace offering, the Lord's Supper is remembrance of what God has done with one another. It's a reason why we don't take Lord's Supper individually or in our homes. It's just for the gathered people of God. Like the peace offering, the Lord's Supper is taken by those who first have repented of known sin in their life. You know, the peace offering that says you need to be clean when you come and take of it. Just as Paul has warned in 1 Corinthians, you need to examine your own heart. You need to turn from any sin in your life that you might take the cup and the bread in a worthy manner. Right? And th- th- this is just, I think, uh, fulfilling what we see in this peace offering. In fact, the first peace offering we see is offered there in Exodus 24 at Sinai. Okay? Um, and it's right after they got the Ten Commandments. The people are sprinkled with blood. They make vows to keep the covenant. But now you remember, what do you do with a peace offering? You eat it, right? Well, what do they do with that peace offering at Mount Sinai? Look in Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet... Right? As it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the men of the people of Israel. Look at this. They beheld God and ate and drank. They go up into the very presence of God and they break bread with him at the foot of Sinai. And praise God for this relationship that he longs with us starting back even long long ago at Sinai he continues to long for us today and so let's let's feast with God today in this very symbolic way as he nourishes our soul and we give him praise i want to give you an opportunity to ask God to to ex- help you examine your heart that you might prepare yourself for this meal let us pray together
Our Father was at Sinai when you entered into this covenant that you, you revealed your will. And you said that we shall have no other gods beside you. That we shall not bow down before any idols. That we shall not use your name in vain. That we shall remember the Sabbath. That we shall honor our parents. That we shall not murder. Shall not commit adultery. We shall not steal. We shall not lie. We shall not covet. Show us by your grace where we fall short. That we might confess our sin to you even now, knowing you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help prepare our hearts to delight in what you have done for us through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.